podcast about the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine. My name is Harrison Doolin. I am a PhD candidate at the University of California, Riverside, and I will be your host for this web series. The purpose of this series is to trace key advancements made in the biological and medical sciences over the past 120 years or so, and we're using the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine as a guide. Now, every career has its highest prize, and the highest prize for a scientist is the Nobel Prize. It is the most prestigious award a scientist can receive, and it marks discoveries that have made a profound impact on our understanding of human biology and our ability to treat diseases. Today, we will be examining the 1907 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which was awarded to Charles Louis Alphonse Laveran. The Nobel Committee chose to give Laveran the award, quote, in recognition of his work on the role played by protozoa in causing diseases. The protozoa that Laveran is most known for is the malaria parasite. Today, we'll be talking about Laveran's identification of the parasite that causes malaria, then we'll break down the life cycle of the malaria parasite and go over some of the current challenges in malaria vaccine development. So first, a little bit about Laveran. Laveran was born in Paris in 1845. He came from a family of medical doctors. Both his father and grandfather were doctors before him, and he followed in their footsteps. He attended the public health school of Strasbourg, then returned to Paris in 1874 to take up the position of chair of military diseases and epidemics at the military hospital École de Val de Grèce. If you speak French and dislike how I pronounce that, um, my apologies. In 1878, once his term as chair had ended, the military sent Laveron to a post in Algeria, where he would remain for the next five years. It was during this time that he focused his attention on the causative agent of malaria disease. So what was known about malaria disease before Laveron's discovery? Well, descriptions of malaria can be found from ancient times, as far back as ancient Greece, and the symptoms of the disease were fairly well documented. A person sick with malaria has some early flu-like symptoms of headache, fever, and tiredness. Then the individual enters daily cycles of chills followed by fever, and there is also typically swelling of the spleen that accompanies this. Now, without treatment, the condition of the individual can gradually worsen, and serious disease can occur, including stroke, organ failure, and death. The people most susceptible to death from malaria are sadly children under five years old, though people of any age are at risk of developing serious disease. The disease was and is found in hot, wet regions. Principally, it is found in the tropics of Africa and Asia, though also in Europe and the Americas. Now, it was also noted in ancient times that the disease was mostly found in marshy places, and people believed that malaria was caused by the bad air of the bogs. The name malaria itself is derived from an Italian phrase meaning spoiled air. However, around Laveran's time, people's understanding of disease was beginning to change. Two prominent scientists, Robert Koch in Germany and Louis Pasteur in France, were pushing the germ theory of disease, the idea that microorganisms could be the causative agents of disease. The work of these scientists established that bacteria, particularly bacteria, 
were causing diseases in humans as well as in animals and plants. As more and more bacteria were shown to be the reason for many diseases, scientists began to look specifically for bacteria, hoping to identify the root cause of many different diseases. However, this search for bacteria was biased and created a bit of a problem. You see, nowadays we know bacteria are not the only microorganisms that cause disease. In fact, today we recognize four different groups of microorganisms that cause disease in humans. One, viruses. Two, bacteria. Three, parasites, which includes protozoa. And fourth, fungi. Now, we know today that these four different types of microorganisms, viruses, bacteria, parasites, and fungi, can all cause disease, but back in the 1870s in La Veron's day, everyone's attention was on the bacteria. At this point in history, viruses hadn't even been discovered yet, so they weren't on anybody's radar at all. Scientists did, however, know about other microorganisms that were separate from bacteria, organisms like amoebas and other protozoa. Unlike bacteria, protozoa and other parasites have a nucleus in each of their cells that houses their DNA. Bacteria, on the other hand, do not have a nucleus and their DNA is sort of free-floating in the cytoplasm. So, although scientists knew about protozoa and nucleate microorganisms, protozoa weren't really considered pathogens. No one really thought of them as disease-causing agents. So when Laveran, our Nobel Prize winner, announced that he had identified a microorganism similar to amoeba in the blood of malaria patients, it was very controversial. His discovery clashed with reports from other scientists who claimed malaria was caused by a particular species of bacteria. Remember that people had already associated malaria with bogs and swamps? Well, rolling with that, some scientists isolated bacteria from swamp water injected that bacteria into animals, and the result was that some of those animals got sick, similarly to malaria. So against that backdrop, here's a quote from Laveran's Nobel Prize acceptance speech, where he describes the response his discovery originally received. Okay, so quote, In 1879, Klebs and Tomasi Creduli had described under the name of Bacillus malariae, a bacillus found in the soil and water in malaria localities and a large number of Italian observers had published papers confirming the work of these authors. The hematozoan which I gave as the agent of malaria did not resemble bacteria and was present in strange forms. And in short, it was completely outside of the circle of known pathogenic microbes. And many observers not knowing how to classify it, found it simpler to doubt its existence. Unquote. Now, I was very convicted by that statement, dear listener. Have you ever been in the position where someone has challenged your categories? Have you ever been presented with something that didn't fit with your understanding of the universe? And rather than going through the difficult work of examining the new data, you found it easier to just ignore it. Now, I confess sometimes I'm guilty of this, but let's try not to be people like that. Rather than just dismissing new ideas that are different, I want to be someone who takes the time to examine new ideas carefully to see if there might be some truth there. So, going back to Laveran, 
Against the backdrop of doubt his discovery received, what did Laveran do to convince people of his finding? Well, one of the points in Laveran's favor over his competitors was that he looked for the pathogen in the patient rather than the environment. The other scientists went looking for malaria in the swamp water, but Laveran went looking for malaria in the blood of sick malaria patients. If this was an infectious disease, it, should be, it would make sense to look in the infected patient, right? So while working at his hospital in Algeria, he took blood from 44 patients suffering from malaria and checked their blood under a microscope. Out of those 44 patients, he saw parasites similar in appearance to amoeba in 26 of those patients. Laveran watched under the microscope as these parasites would enter red blood cells where they would begin to replicate. Importantly, he only saw the parasite in the sick or dead patients, but not in healthy patients. Additionally, he took blood samples from malaria patients continuously as they took their anti-malaria medication. Laveran saw that as a person took their drugs and got better, the parasite would go away. Laveran published his finding in 1881, but again, people were skeptical. Some were saying he was seeing specialized blood cells, not microorganisms under the microscope. Laveran had to present detailed drawings and descriptions of his parasite to convince people that what he saw really was an infectious microorganism. Remember, cameras weren't advanced enough to capture what he saw under the microscope, so he had to draw everything out. Eventually, more and more people looked in the blood of malaria patients to see if they could find the parasite Laveran had identified. And by 1889, after his finding was confirmed by many other scientists, the parasitic nature of malaria was no longer in doubt. Now, Laveran's discovery that malaria was caused by a protozoa was the first time anyone had named a parasite as a cause of disease, not just in humans, but in any organism. And given that the disease he was working with was malaria, a major cause of death, his discovery was of huge scientific and medical importance. Laveran paved the way for more work to be done studying the connection between protozoa and disease. After his work with malaria, Laveran identified another parasite as the cause of African sleeping sickness, a fatal disease common to the tropics of sub-Saharan Africa. Now, such significant findings could not escape the attention of the Nobel Committee, and Laveran was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1907. A generous man, he used half of his prize money to establish a laboratory of tropical medicine at the Pasteur Institute in Paris where he worked, and this was for the continuation of research on parasitic diseases. So, where are we at today in our understanding of the malaria parasite? Well, Nowadays, we know that malaria can be caused by five different but related species of parasite that all belong to the genus Plasmodium. The most common and deadliest of the five species of malaria is called Plasmodium falciparum, or P. falciparum for short, and most malaria research has been done on P. falciparum. One of the earlier discoveries was that the parasite is spread from person to person through the bite of a mosquito and a Nobel Prize was awarded to Robert Ross for that discovery. 
So as researchers began to study Laveran's parasite, it was soon discovered that malaria has a rather complicated but fascinating life cycle. Now, whenever you hear a scientist give a talk about malaria, they always have this obligatory slide where they show you the parasite's life cycle. So let's go through that complicated but fascinating life cycle of the malaria parasite P. falciparum. The malaria life cycle is amazingly complex as the parasite has to replicate both in the mosquito and in the human host. The sexual reproduction of the parasite occurs exclusively in the mosquito, and asexual reproduction occurs in both the mosquito and the mammalian host. So Laveran had identified the parasite in the blood of infected patients, so let's start the cycle there. The stage of the malaria life cycle where the parasite actively infects red blood cells is called the erythrocytic stage. Erythrocyte is a fancy word for red blood cell, so erythrocytic is when the erythrocytes are being lysed and the parasite's infecting your red blood cells. Your red blood cells are what carry oxygen to all the cells in your body, and they carry CO2, carbon dioxide, away from your cells to your lungs. The parasite infects these red blood cells and divides and reproduces asexually, producing lots of new parasites, until it bursts the red blood cell and the parasites move on to invade new red blood cells. Some of these parasites will develop into premature male and female gametes, what we call egg and sperm in mammalian reproduction. However, the egg and the sperm don't fuse just yet. First, a female mosquito comes and bites the person infected with malaria and drinks a blood meal. The blood begins to cool in the gut of the mosquito and this is the trigger for the male and the female gametes to mature and fuse to form a zygote, just like in mammalian fertilization. Now this sexual reproduction step is critical for the malaria life cycle because parasites that did not become gametes or fail to fuse are unable to survive in the gut of the mosquito and will die. The ones that did fuse, however, will burrow into the lining of the mosquito gut and go all the way through that gut lining, come out the other end, and form a cyst in the wall of the gut of the mosquito. The cyst will grow as the parasite divides and eventually the cyst will rupture to release the parasite into the mid-gut of the mosquito. These newly released parasites are called sporozoites, and once they leave the cyst, the sporozoites begin migrating towards the salivary glands of the mosquito. Now only about 20% of them will actually make it to the salivary glands of the mosquito. The rest are killed off by the mosquito's immune system. Yes, mosquitoes have immune systems. But the ones that make it to the salivary glands invade a new mammalian host when the mosquito bites its next victim. Now, you think at this point, the parasite would enter the blood and start infecting red blood cells again to complete the cycle. But there's actually one final stage of the malaria life cycle that happens before the parasite begins infecting red blood cells. But it took scientists about 40 years to find it. <laughs> so researchers back in Laveran's day had figured out that the mosquito transmitted the malaria parasite. But it was noted that there was a period of about 10 days after the mosquito bit the person, during which the parasite could not be detected in the blood. 
So the question was, well, where did the parasite go? Now, what happened was a scientist named Schaden in Germany at the beginning of the 20th century announced that he had observed the sporozoites directly infecting red blood cells. Now, nobody could replicate that, but everyone kind of just accepted it and went along with it for the next 40 years. However, extensive research was being done on the malaria parasites of birds. Yes, birds get malaria as well. All the research being done in birds showed that before the parasite infects red blood cells, it sets up shop somewhere else in the body before eventually invading the red blood cells. People became suspicious that the human malaria parasites might also set up shop somewhere else before invading red blood cells. This pre-red blood cell or pre-erythrocytic stage of the parasite's life cycle was finally proved by the scientists Henry Short and Cecil Garnham in 1947. They showed that once a mosquito bites a new host, the injected parasites, instead of directly infecting red blood cells, travel through the veins and arteries of the host's circulatory system until they reach the liver. The parasite will then set up shop in the liver for about 10 days, and a single parasite infecting just one liver cell can produce thousands of progeny malaria parasites. The infected liver cell eventually bursts, and the progeny malaria parasites go on to invade and replicate inside new red blood cells, thus completing the malaria life cycle. Now, this life cycle is really cool and all, but how does it help us prevent people from getting sick from malaria? So that brings us to our last topic for today, malaria vaccines. The complex life cycle of the malaria parasite makes creating an effective vaccine for malaria rather difficult. First of all, the malaria parasite is a sexually reproducing organism. That's important. During malaria sexual reproduction, offspring can inherit genes from either the male or the female parent, just like you got genes from both your mother and your father. This means it's easy to create new, genetically different strains of malaria that can evade your immune system. So here's an analogy that might help understand this a little bit. Imagine your immune system is a security system guarding a government building. And the security system uses facial recognition software to detect a known terrorist from entering the building. The software will be able to match photos of the terrorist to the face of someone coming in the building and alerts the security guards to the danger if the face matches the photo. Now imagine instead of the terrorist showing up at the building, it's the terrorist's son. That son will look a bit like their parent, but will also look different enough to not be detected by the facial recognition software, and so the son will be able to get by the security system. This is sort of what happens with malaria and malaria vaccines. The photo used by the facial recognition software is like the vaccine. It tells your immune system what the malaria parasite is supposed to look like and what to attack should it show up. But during sexual reproduction, different malaria strains can produce a new strain that looks a little different, and the immune system fails to detect that new malaria parasite. So antibodies made from the vaccine that work against the old strain 
won't be much good against the new strain, so the person is susceptible to infection. The second reason it's hard to make an effective vaccine against malaria is that it has so many stages to its life cycle, and each stage looks very different from the others. The parasite goes through drastic changes in gene expression and protein expression each time it enters a new stage of its life cycle. Now, which stage of the life cycle targeted by the vaccine makes a difference? For example, Vaccines that target the erythrocytic stage have become less popular in recent years as they won't block the parasite from infecting the liver. Vaccines that prevent the parasite from infecting the liver will theoretically block the whole infectious cycle, so these are viewed as better vaccine candidates. The problem, however, is that if just one of those parasites makes it to a liver cell, that one parasite can divide to produce 30,000 parasites. And the time window from when the mosquito bites to when the first liver cell gets infected is only a few minutes. So these vaccines need to produce very high antibody titers to be effective. The only malaria vaccine that has passed phase three trials for approval is called the RTSS vaccine. And it actually works via this mechanism. It works by blocking the ability of the parasite to infect the liver. Now, the RTSS vaccine is currently being used in several African countries, but its efficiency is pretty low. It reduces clinical disease by about 30 to 40% among the people who get the vaccine. Which, you know, that's better than nothing, but it could definitely be better. We can do better than 30 to 40% efficacy. So there's still a lot of great science that needs to be done, and scientists are currently working on developing other vaccines that maybe will be more protective against malaria. So that concludes this third episode of Notable Nobels. This episode was recorded on September 19th, 2020. I want to thank Digital Mind Productions for providing the music. Next time on Notable Nobels, we will be talking about one of the founders of bacteriology, a man of such influence that the German version of the CDC bears his name to this day. Who was this notable Nobel? Well, tune in next time to find out. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you then.